Good morning, beloved. Welcome back. Monday morning. Man, we made it through another weekend. I saw there was some comments in the chat about a question about bar oil. Just so happened I was getting all my stuff ready uh, before the, the show started here. We've been cutting, doing quite a bit of firewood cutting as well. We're primarily doing firewood right now and just finishing up the fence. So the portion that we were working on last week, we should have it done today. We had to pick up a little extra barbed wire and off we go. So eating an elephant around here one thing at a time. I'm hoping this afternoon I'm going to go over and lay out and get all of the final measurements for all of the, the electrical work that we're going to do on the new shop, which will be the conduit, water line, and get all that thing here. I think that's what we're going to jump on next. So we'll be putting those utilities in. we got the permits in hand and such. So it's going to be nice. We'll get power out to the new shop. We've been without power and having the automatic garage door openers, that's not ideal. <laughs> so sometimes I question the wisdom of those modern conveniences. Regarding bar oil, the question that came up in the comments was, is it okay to save a few bucks by using used motor oil or just regular motor oil instead of bar oil? And can you filter it, etc.? That's really not the problem. The problem isn't so much the vis viscosity, although somewhat, or contaminants and such. The problem is it's not sticky. It's not stringy. There's a big difference between bar oil and regular oil in that it's really sticky. Let me show you here. So we have some AMS oil. This is a good bar, bar oil right here. And if you check your bar oil, just so you can find out yourself, well, I got, got in deep. Look how stringy. I don't know if you can see it or not, but there's an actual a, a string of oil on that. Now that's done by design. Well, now I'm going to need, need to get my... Good thing I'm organized here. Proho always has a rag at the ready, especially since he spills so much oil. That stickiness is critical in that it, it keeps it from flinging off the tip of the bar. Now when we have, whenever you rotate it, ever, anything, I mean, imagine dunking a, uh, a tennis ball in water and then spinning it, flipping it, you're going to see that water spray every direction. Same thing happens with our bar oil. As that chain is spinning around the bar, it is throwing or flinging that off the end at a rapid rate. And if you use just regular motor oil, Will it work? Yes, it'll work. It's fine to use in a pinch. If that's all you have, it's better than running it dry, obviously, but it's not going to last as long. So it's, it's a matter of pay me now or pay me later. That's the type of thing. If you use motor oil, save a few bucks, you're going to have premature, premature bar wear uh, because it's just not going to hang on there. It's not going to stick. So you're going to buy b bars more often. You're going to go through chains more often. I don't even know uh, if that's going to do anything with, because of the thinner viscosity, if that's going to do anything with the oil pump in the saw. I just don't know that it's worth it, to be honest with you. And I, I, I get it, man. I, I've, when I didn't know, I used to think the same thing. And I would look at bar oil and I'm like, goodness, it's, that stuff is expensive. Why don't I just use what I already have? You know, it's just lubricating oil. How much different can it be, right? Well, that's really the main difference. Something that you're going to start seeing and, you know, depending on how you feel about the environment and such, which I'm actually kind of happy to see that as long as it comes in at a reasonable price and it is equally as good, is uh, this right here. Or not particularly this brand, but biodegradable. Biodegradable chainsaw bar oil. Now, I haven't heard positive or negative, but you have to consider, you know, if I just take myself, for example, and the amount of chainsaw work that I do, I'll go through one of these bar oils probably a year or so that's a gallon a year 
uh, between me and my manservant, Jariah. Now, where is all that bar oil going? Well, it's going into the ground, right? It goes into the ground. Some of it, some of it, a lot of it's going to be flung into the firewood, will ultimately just be burnt up in your stove. But again, every single ounce or gallon of that sold across the world ends up back in, in your land. So something to consider. There is an option out there. So I haven't even used this yet. I just got this. We'll see. We will see. Funny that that topic came up because I wanted to cover something really quick before we jump into the show uh, that was asked about what should your chainsaw repair kit look like? Uh, what, what part should you carry? My granddad always took these tools. Now, I have added a few more. These parts, this parts kit up with him to, the, to the, where we used to cut wood because most folks, you know, if you're going to take your chainsaw and you're going to go cut firewood, you, you have a bit of a drive. And if you only have one saw to take, you know, you kind of set the whole day aside to go do that, to go up there and to lose something like a bar nut or just have a minor thing or break your pull cord, you know, these things should, should be, you should be able to fix these things on site. And it might help you from wasting the whole day. So especially when you want to, you talk about life safety. So when I was with the Forest Service, I went through Sawyer Training School and this is, you know, my kit is actually better than their kit, but they, they carried a few of these things. Uh, if you had a good sawyer, they would. So I'll start with, with the parts kit. So this is just a small tackle box. You, know, you can get these on Amazon, little divider kit. And these are the essential pieces that I keep in my saw kit. Uh, number one, since we're running two-stroke saws, two-stroke saws are going to foul plugs. Have an extra spark plug uh, in your saw kit. If you're having hard starting issues, if you haven't changed it for a few years and are tired of pulling on the thing, usually with a two-stroke engine, they're so simple, um, this goes a long ways. Have an extra spark plug on you and keep that in your kit. So that's number one. Uh, number two is going to be uh, bar nuts. Man, I don't know why, still husky, why they don't retain bar nuts. I've seen it done on some of the smaller saws, but on the pro saws, I've never seen that done. They should be. All things that you operate in the field, if you're a design engineer, you should, you should retain all nuts. Any little less fiddly things that Proho has to do or to keep track of when he's trying to accomplish work out in the field is greatly appreciated. That's why you take AR, for example, when, I, when, the, when the brilliant Eugene Stoner invented the AR-15, Everything on there, for the most part, is retained, short of the cam pin. <laughs> the cam pin pin. Yeah, that, that's something that can get lost. But that's done by, for a reason. They understand that most guys, you know, they're going to be operating these things in an austere environment. It's hard to keep track of fiddly little bits. So have, have your bar nuts. You can run your saw with one bar nut, but it will come loose. So I put those in there. Second thing uh, I'm going to have... There's a couple of wear items, especially for those of you guys who run steel saws. These right here. These are little sliders that go on the outside cover that protect the cover. And these just pop in and they're easy to lose. If you take your cover off and you blow your saw off at the end of the day, also, we should probably talk about that. You can lose these. I've done it. They wear out. You know, they're like a dollar or two a piece. Next time you're at the steel dealership, just get, one, get a couple of those. They're both the same, top and bottom. And where that chain comes around on that inner cover, you'll see those, those little guys there and replace those. Next thing, 
if you don't maintain your saw, you know, this of course would never happen to our saw because we would catch this long beforehand, but it can happen. Uh, the clutch springs. Clutch springs. Now, I didn't carry these. I've never seen anyone. They're right here. They're just little. Well, let's see if I can get that. They're just little guys. Little clutch. <laughs> They're impossible to show on camera. Lost my cage bearing. Clutch springs. Now, this came to me uh, from my most trusted chainsaw mechanic, who sadly shut down his shop and retired last year. The last time I talked to him, I went down there and I said, hey, if you were going to advise me as a, a master steel mechanic, this is a guy that has builds uh, performance saws for competition, who builds um, professional saws for professional loggers, what pieces would you have in, in a little repair parts kit? And he said, well, spark plug, you know, the things I showed you, bar nuts. He goes, but what I would add and what real pros carry are some extra springs. Now, these little springs are for your clutch. These can break, come loose. You can easily fix these in the field. So having a handful of these is going to keep you going, as well as the pilot bearing, little pilot cage bearing there that's part of that as well. That can go out or start chattering or just fall apart, and you won't be cutting. So that's what I keep in my spare parts kit, just like that right there. So that goes in here, and I also keep, this is my spare parts kit. I also keep an extra scrunch tool. Yeah, I know you have one on your follower's belt, but you can lose these things. You lay it down. They're easy, easy to lose. Have an extra scrunch kit. This is going to give you everything you need to do to work on your saw. Have a carburetor adjustment tool right there and know how to use it. If you don't know how to adjust saws, you can go up to our friends up in Madsons. Madsons, M-A-D-S-O-N-S, up in Washington State. It's the logging superstore. They actually have online videos that will teach you how to tune your saw, and you can do it by ear. So you have an adjustment for that. And then finally, a replacement pull cord. And don't, don't cheap out. Don't get the aftermarket ones. Insist on OEM quality uh, with a recoil rope right there. And that makes up the kit. And this is what I take with me on fires. Well, a lot of professional fallers will take with them on fires. And man, one and done, and you're good to go. Also, I have to say, man, I have, I've been on the fence about this little sharpener for some time. I'm a fan. I'm a fan. I have every sharpener, chainsaw sharpener, known to man. I've tried every facet. I've tried all of them. There's a lot of good ones out there. But really, when it, if you want something that is simple, that works, that anybody can do it, even non-proho, man, this is really a good tool right here, the all-in-one. I... I've had this for some time. I've used it, put it back, used it, put it back, you know, didn't really know how I felt about it. But one thing that changed my mind on this little sharpener right here was when I saw what the young people were doing. I saw young people actually able, able to sharpen their saws on a wildland fire because of these things. Now, previously, previously, I would roll up on a fire. Uh, and in my division, if I was assigned to anything that had to do with doing saw your work or saw, file, saw cutting or brushing, I, I always like to do that. So I typically end up in that position or volunteer, light snag falling, that sort of thing. But one thing that I noticed that was an absolute horror was you would get a whole bunch of brand new minted sawyers that are college kids, 
boys and girls, men and women, that didn't have probably never handled a saw before, went through some re remedial training, and now they're turned loose with chainsaws in the wildland fireground. Well, everything works great until they put their saw in the dirt and then it gets dull and it's not working very good. And so they come back down to the road and you see them sitting in the dirt filing away, making it actually much worse than it was before. And then production absolutely goes in the tank. So what I've always ended up doing <laughs> is basically I become the saw filer, setting up shop there, sit down in the gravel or find myself a bench. I always take a stump vise or a stump. Uh, set up the best I can and I start filing saws um, as they come in. One thing that I noticed that as soon as the Forest Service started issuing the, the new filers these things, they were able to file their own saws. It's very simple. It does the rakers or the depth gauges as well as the teeth. This is for round file only. It is um, not the, maybe not the best high precision chisel grind you know, that you're gonna want if you're a performance guy. But if you want something that just works, that you don't have to go back to school to learn, that you won't have frustration with, these are good. These are super, super good. And after seeing that, really, you know, that's what I grab. I throw it in my back pocket and I can file away and I can get a good edge on those. So just a couple tips on chainsaw. Now remember, beloved, Proho should be thinking about doing his firewood about right now. Right now is traditionally when men would do their firewood. You do it in the spring for the following year. You don't be like an East Coast man or a Philistine and wait till the fall. It seems like it's amazing to me how many people always right at the fall when the rain starts coming, all of a sudden they wake up and realize, oh, goodness, maybe I should cut some firewood to heat my house this winter. Well, what are you going to get? What are you going to find? Well, most of the good stuff's already gone. If you're cutting and you're, and you're gonna end up getting stuff, it's probably not seasoned and you don't have time to season it then. You need to season through the summertime. So now is when you wanna go out and cut your firewood before it gets too hot. Go and cut, get ahead of the crowd and then stack it up, whether it be you do the Hugel houses or whatever you wanna do, but make sure that it's out there drying in the sun and then you can bring it in and you'll have, you won't have any problem with fires uh, if you have everything done that way. So it is firewoods time. All right, let's jump into it. We have a super chat from Mr. Tony Baloney. Used motor oil, good for bar, bar, bar oil in a pinch? No, yeah, in a pinch, yes, Tony. You can use it in a pinch, just like we said, but that problem, that stickiness, so that lack of stickiness is always the issue with that bar oil. It was not designed for that. We have a brand new member, Mr. Tim Linderman. Goodness. Shout out to you. Welcome. Nice to have you here as well as Sullivan, Sullivan 1620. Shout out to both of you. We're very happy to have the two of you here. Welcome. Welcome to the family. We have a super chat from Mr. Jamie. Jamie's been with us for two months now. Jamie writes, does the brand matter on bar oil? Pooling versus still. That's one of the things that I don't care about at all. Not, none whatsoever. Um, no, I do not think it matters. I have I've looked at so many of them. You know, I don't have a way to physically test it, but I've wondered this myself. Is it better off to buy the name brand? Because when it comes to your mix, I'm pretty particular about that. I'm not going to run any cheap bar oil mix, but again, I don't know if it matters. I've never done the testing on it, but when you spend so much money on a good engine uh, and you spend so much money, you know, just perfect example. The two main two-strokes in my life are going to be my chainsaws and my 
my 300, right? I've, this is anecdotal, so take it for what it's worth. I have always, always ran the best oil and, and the best gas that, that I can get. 92 octane, ethanol free, and always with the chainsaws, I've always run either Husqvarna or still oil. And then recently, you know, a couple years ago, I switched over to Amsoil, which is on par, if not even better. Well, my 441 that I bought, uh, goodness, you know, almost 20 years ago, uh, that I recently sold to a friend of mine was still a perfectly running saw. And that was after doing, mat, you know, logging with it. We logged our off-grid property. I chainsaw milled an entire timber frame cabin as well as who knows how many other things uh, before I got my Lucas. Uh, I've cut, you know, six to ten cords of firewood every year with it and numerous tree falling projects. I mean, on and on and on. And when I sold that saw, it was still had compression. It still worked perfectly, even with all those hours on it. And I'll tell you, man, running a chainsaw with a chainsaw mill, I mean, there's nothing that will run a guts, the guts out of a saw more than that. Uh, and that right there proved to me what a high quality engine um, still makes. Ne never, never a problem, never threw parts at it, nothing. Absolutely perfect all the time. And I attribute that, a lot of that, to quality lubricants. Now your two-stroke oil is different than your four-stroke, your two-stroke engine is different than your four-stroke in that the way it's lubricated. Now your car, you know, you have an oil sump. You have a five, six, seven, eight, nine quarts of oil that sit in the pan in the bottom. And when you start that thing, there's a pump that, that splashes it all around and it runs through cam journals and all this and it keeps the thing lubricated. That's how it's done. Two-stroke is very different. Two-stroke is lubricated by the oil in the gas. And as that sprays into the side of the engine, the whole lower end of that, your crank, your connecting rods, all of that is lubricated not from a sump of oil, but lubricated from that oil in the mix. So what you choose, your percentage, your ratio, whether it be 40, 50, or 60 to 1, whether you're buying cheap motor oil or you're buying nice stuff like AMS oil or still, I think that that, well, I don't think, I know that that's going to directly relate correlate to how long that engine lasts and, and how the quality of that oil. So I'm just not about, it's easy to pinch pennies when you're looking at it, when you're comparing these things and you go to the saw shop and you think, well, you know, I could save a few bucks, maybe a couple bucks a quart if I buy the no-name brand. Is it the same? You know, I just don't know. I've never bought it, but I've also never had to replace the bottom end. You know, so Let's say you saved $100 over the lifetime of a saw by buying an inferior product. Well, if you've got to go into the bottom end and that saw is junk or that motorcycle is junk or you've got to rebuild an engine at a three or $4,000, then is it worth it? You know, I just don't know. I don't know. It's, sometimes it's hard to cut through the marketing, um, but I don't know. I don't know. I just go with Amsoil. You just go with Amsoil, then you know you're good. But when it comes to bar oil, I wouldn't make, it wouldn't matter to me too much. wouldn't matter. We have a super chat from our friend, Mr. Gamer Dave. Shout out to you, Gamer Dave. Gamer Dave says, I had a thought today while gardening and dealing with poison ivy. Poison ivy, man. We don't have poison ivy around here, but we have poison oak. But lower. We're too high for it, but we have it down lower. That is just like the evil in the world, slowly creeping in, being accepted 
until it starts to choke and consume all of its past. You know, that's so interesting you should say that, Dave. I, I do the same thing. When we read through the good book, especially in the New Testament, there's a lot of references, agricultural references. There's a lot of references about sheep and, and donkeys and, and uh, the wine press and olives and olive oil and all these things that we really can't relate to too much. But the people at the time that were hearing this, that were people of the land, that had a very, that had a very vivid, it painted a very vivid picture to them. If you were a vintner or a winemaker and you heard the story that Jesus was talking about, we don't put new wine into old wineskins, you would know immediately what he was talking about because it had been tried. It had been known and understood. Sometimes I think maybe if you are really removed from the land, removed from working with your hands or what it's like to, what it's like to butcher your own meat and such, it insulates you from the reality and, and the, I guess the seriousness of our condition and the seriousness of life. I, I had the same experience that, um, that Gamer Dave is talking about in that when you're out, in, in the, when you're out working in your garden, out working with your tools, that these stories that Christ told, these parables, they have a lot more significance when you understand it, when you understand how many times when I was working in my old orchard and we would be pruning and we would gather up all of the sticks and then we would throw them in the fire and burn them. And, and when we, pl we planted so many trees in the orchard, and inevitably there's going to be one or two that just don't produce. They don't produce the fruit that you're expecting. You pay a fair amount for a fruit tree. You expect it, if you do everything right on your end, that you dig a hole and you line it with wire to keep the moles out and you put fish fertilizer on it and you very lovingly water it every day or put an irrigation system in there. There is an expectation that if you put this effort in, you're going to receive fruit. And the more effort you put in, typically the more fruit you receive. Well, when that, fruit, when that tree doesn't produce fruit for who knows what reason, you double up on your efforts, maybe give it a little bit more fertilizer, maybe a little extra measure of water, maybe bury a fish in there or something. And then again, if you come back the following year, it still doesn't produce, well, then there's nothing left for it but to cut it down, to cut it down and throw it in the fire where it's consumed and gone forever. And that analogy, that parable that Jesus made is, is very much about the, about the Christian walk and about us. He'll call us out of the world and then he'll build a fence around us. He'll help us in some way. Uh, he'll do everything just like you would do everything to give the tree, the, the, the budding tree, a future, uh, 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 the best prospects or the best potential. potential. The best, of, <laughs> you're giving it every advantage. God does that to you as well. But it comes a point that if you don't respond to that, if you're not picking up what he's laying down, if, he's, if you're not co collaborating with him to spread the gospel to those that are, are lost in sin, then it can get to a point where he will no longer do it, but you will be hewn down uh, and thrown into the fire as well. So this, what Dave is talking about, is very common to people that get out on the land. You know, as also, you know, just another thing, one of the greatest and most terrible things that I ever had to experience growing up was butchering my first animal. You know, learning about death and, and such.
And I remember, and I remember multiple occasions uh, when you hunt, when you go hunting for deer or elk or bear or antelope, you always, as an ethical hunter, you always strive to make a clean shot. You, you don't want to, just because you can get a shot off on something, I was always taught, and, and my granddad was of the belief in my family, that just because you can get a shot off with the near hope that you might hit it is never reason to do it. That's irresponsible, and it would be better to let the animal go off um, and, and, and continue on another way than to getting a poor shot where the animal is, is going to be hit and crippled and suffer. There's no need for an animal to suffer. Hunting is one thing. Fishing is one thing. But get, get it over quickly. Get, end, end the suffering as quickly as you can. That's a responsibility of, of, that God has given us. You know, we will give an account not only to how we behave amongst other people and towards other people, but we'll also give an account, in my opinion, of how did we treat our animals as well. You have ran into people that are sadistic, that enjoy hurting things, hurting animals. Sometimes children will do it. Sometimes boys will do that. But we'll give an account for that. Yes, we have to eat. Sometimes there are varmints, sometimes there are dangerous predators that are preying on our chickens or our livestock. We need to deal with them, but we should deal with it swiftly, as swiftly as possible. So when we were hunting, we would always try to be responsible and, and to make a clean shot for that reason. Well, sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes the animal will move at the last moment. Sometimes you're just amped up and excited and you may gut shoot, or you might shoot through the hindquarters, or, or, or who knows what, all, through, through the abdomen. All sorts of things can happen. So you'll track these animals, and this can go on for hours. We've tracked all night before for poorly shot animals or just strange things that have happened. And then when you come upon it, sometimes it has already succumbed to its injuries, but more times than not, it has not. And that was, that was a real surprise for me when I rolled up as a young, you know, as probably I don't know what I was, maybe 13, 12, 13 or so, rolled up on a, an, an elk that's still alive, very much alive, and thrashing it. Yes, it's laying down, it's been shot, it's, it's, more, it's, it's mortally wounded, but it's still a wild animal and it's, it's not done fighting yet, and you have to deal with that. How do you deal with that? How do you do it? I'll never forget it, watching my granddad the first time. He approached and grabbed it by its antler, stepped over it, and just immediately, first thing before anything, was just slit its throat. Slit its throat and bled it out, and that was the quickest way to dispatch it and to be done with it. And to uh, That whole scene, uh, watching that as a child, um, and the smell of the blood and the butchering process um, that I was all involved with, you know, it made a very powerful impact on me. Just thinking about it now gives me, you know, just gives me goose shivers because the wages of sin are death, the good book tells us. Something is going to die. Something has to die. That's the law of God. And it falls, oftentimes it falls to the animals. It would be a good thing, I think, for most people to see that, to experience that at 12 or 13, that, uh, that to provide us people, our family, with food like those animals did that we hunted, um, they pay a great pr price for that. And it's not something that you should take, be flippant about or anything that you should take lightly. And I don't think it, 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 
I don't think you can once you've seen it and once you've had to do it and get your hands dirty and roll up your own sleeves and, and have blood up to your elbows. Um, it would be a great lesson, I think, for a lot of people. And the point I want to make is that um, it's hard it's hard to know God in the chaotic environment in a city, in an urban area. It's a lot easier when you get out in the country when everything that you see speaks to His glory and that you are working with the land and you're actually touching and feeling and living in reality. Um, these lessons that you hear and, and these parables that come out of Christ's mouth have, just seem to have a lot more significance and meaning when you are when you're in the, the setting. But I, I agree, Dave. Yeah, David's absolutely right. It's, it is. You know, the, the good book tells us that all of creation speaks, is a testimony or speaks to the glory or the majesty of God. And it is. It's, it's that way. When we're in the city, what do we see? Everything that we see, almost everything, is man-made. There are a lot of places. I've lived in places where there, was, you, there wasn't even a tree in the medium. It's just everything was paved over concrete, asphalt, and steel and glass. And everything that you see speaks to God, to, to man's ingenuity. Whereas when you're in nature, everything that you see speaks to the majesty and, and the creative power of the Almighty. Yeah, good question. We have a, a live chat from living in Chico, California. Shout out to you. I used to, my, my best friend growing up in California, in California, in Oregon, growing up when I was about 17, 18, uh, his family came from Chico. They had a big almond orchard down there. Beautiful country. He says, do you carry a 19X while you ride your moto? If so, how do you carry it? Uh, no, actually, I carry, um, I have tried everything. Uh, how to carry on moto. Now, in the past, I didn't always carry. Now, I go out, we go, we probably ride about three to four, maybe five nights a week after work. Uh, go up north. And in the past, my only concern really up there has been, well, I had I have ran across one time I, I, I spooked a, a sow with two cubs, a bear, you know, and that's concerning. But I also had the mic, the bike so I could skedaddle out of there and stay out of harm's way. But I haven't really made it a priority. Sometimes I would take it, sometimes I wouldn't. But now anymore, I always take it. I'll tell you, man, people have changed uh, significantly um, since COVID in the last 48 months. There are a lot more people in the National Forest than there used to be. There are a lot of people up there living now. We ran across a couple families uh, two nights ago um, that were up there living in the middle of nowhere. Uh, one was in their car and the other one had a travel trailer that they drug up there in kind of a, a backwood spot at the end of a, a road. As we were up there exploring, we ran across it. And so and just judging from the type of just the way things look, you know, these are not the type of people that you necessarily want to have a conversation with. And there are a lot of folks that are really aggressive, a lot more than they used to be. I also notice it with driving. Uh, this year alone, I've had two people, yeah, two people try to hit me and run, run me, as well as my friends that were with, off the road, obviously. It wasn't an accident. I, you know, I don't know if they were trying to kill us if they had a vendetta against motorcycles or what it is, but people are just less patient and, and definitely more aggressive. And we have all, all noticed it, and the war band is collectively had all, has all decided we will always carry now. We always carry on the motorcycle no matter what. 
We're carrying pistols, we're not carrying long guns, but we're also starting to experiment that if and when that time comes, how will we carry long guns? What long guns will we carry? And how do we incorporate this into our system? And I'm sad to say I don't have an answer for that yet. This is something that we just kind of started working on. But when it comes to carrying pistols, um, I can tell you the way that we do it. Now, when I first started, I would do them in the backpack. Um, throw one in the backpack, throw a little G1926 in there in an extra magazine, maybe a flashlight, throw it in the back, no problem. But man, things happen really, really quickly. And I just thought, for example, you know, when that guy tried to run us off the road, this was two weeks ago, he was in a big white Ford F-Series pickup, put us all in the ditch, we, you know, we got around it because we were expecting these things. Um, one of the members in our group that's not in the war band was very agitated. Now, we've talked about these situations, the war band and I, that when we run into someone or if we run into someone up there in this environment and they get super aggressive and guns come out and guns are pulled and whatever reason everyone's mad, how are we going to react to the situation and how are we going to deal with it? Well, we've all decided there is nothing that anyone, there's nothing that we want to hear from anyone up there. I don't care what anyone wants, has to say to me. Uh, we're not sticking around to talk to anyone, um, apart from someone in distress. If someone is in distress and we're in a group, yeah, we'll, we'll do what we can to help. But if someone is just agitated or, or trying to escalate or start something up, we have zero egos and we, have, we, have, we want nothing to do with this. So we've all decided corporately uh, as a war band that we're just going to leave. We have the ability to leave. We're not pulling guns. We're not doing nothing. Uh, it is, that's completely off the table. We're just going to remove ourselves from the situation and move on. And whatever was going on with this person, that's their problem. They've got nothing to say, absolutely nothing to say that I want to hear. And that also goes to anyone in, in official capacity as well. We don't want to talk to anyone uh, at all. <laughs> so that's where we're starting. Now, for carrying, in that particular situation, one of the non-war band members was very agitated at this uh, and wanted to go back. Wanted to go back, wanted to do something about this, wanted to find out, you know, why did this guy just try to kill us in this truck when we're all on motorcycles? Um, and when we'd stopped, you know, some couple miles away to discuss this, um, he was of this opinion. He was also the one that didn't, the only one that wasn't carrying a firearm, <laughs> right? which we all were. Now, in a situation like that, I, you know, we kind of discussed it. Let's say that you have to assume that a, that a man up, that's up there is going to have a rifle at least. And to go up against a man with a rifle with handguns, even if it's three on two, is not something that I would relish, especially when he's got the cover of a truck uh, over the hood or something like that. So that was kind of an impetus for us to get the, get the, the, the guns out of the bags and such and have them in a way where you could get to them very quickly. Now, how do you deal with that on a motorcycle? Well, we handle it two different ways. Now, some of the war band... Uh, has gone to carrying in a, uh, a chest-mounted pouch. Uh, and now this is a very good option. And I've done this prior to my way I'm carrying now. That's the way I've always done it. I've done it for years that way. And it works really good. You can uh, get like a... And I'll, I'll, I'll share this with you. I'll actually... I'll do a video for the members of how I do this uh, the next day or two. And I'll show you the, the two mechanisms. Little zipper pouch. You put it in there. Throw in your wallet, very handy. My, my buddy Bryant, excuse me, he loves to carry this way. 
Problem with that is, is you, you get a lot of stuff going on. You've got this, this little Rhodesian thing going on here. Just a little, it's, it's really small, it's a little pouch. And then you, but you've got the back harnesses and all of that. And then you gotta throw a backpack on top of that. And, and for me, it's just too restricting. There's just too much stuff going on. If I wanna change a jacket now, now I'm taking off the backpack. Now I'm, I'm taking off the, the firearm and it's, it's just a pain. I, I don't like it. So that's not, that's, that's not the go-to for me. So I've rejected that. Plus it doesn't work with my pack. So what I've gone to do, doing is, is what I did is I, is, is I had to buy new moto pants this year um, and I bought moto pants that have uh, belt loops in them. And I carry strong side on the, on the outside the waistband Kydex holster uh, right on my belt, just like that. And I've noticed that um, some of the other Warband members have started doing that as well. Uh, that they're carrying, some of the guys are carrying um, some of the bigger, like the Safari Lands, the bigger holsters that stick out a long ways. I'm not an advocate of that because, you know, you want to be, when you're riding in the forest, and you, you, know, you want to be very slim. And I know what my width is. I'm able to use my peripheral and get through trees and small areas. You start bolting stuff on the side of you that you're not used to wearing then you're always bumping it into things. And you run a real high risk of losing it. You want everything tucked in nice and tight. That's why I like that really tight Kydex holster. And I just snap it right on there. And I carry my Glock 26 uh, with an extra magazine right on my pants outside the waistband. Um, and I've got probably 10 rides, big rides, and some big rides with it on there. No problem, no problem. Lanyard, I'm ordering a lanyard. I am concerned. It's not a big deal now because when I wear an enduro jacket, I'll put that over the, and that covers it because enduro jackets are longer in the body and it covers all of that. So if it's covered, I'm not, I'm not worried about the force taking it away from me, you know, reaching out and grabbing it, yanking it out of my holster. But in the summertime, when I lose that enduro jacket, I will be running a military style lanyard. I'll snap it right under the back of the handle. I just drilled, the G26 doesn't have a lanyard hole. I just drilled my own. And, and I'll just lanyard that right to me that if it comes out in a crash or whatever, I'm not gonna lose it. But I also have really quick access to it, dealing with a, a mama bear that's upset or with the predators, which are bipeds, uh, which are um, proliferating uh, in the forest. So that's how I do it. Chest mount or on the hip uh, with moto pants with belt loops. Good question, though. Yeah, I'll, I'll cover this. I'll do a video for you members on that. We'll go over it in detail of how, of how I found that works out pretty good. Mr. Evan Roach. Shout out to you, Evan. Evan says, hey, Cody, those all-in-one steel sharpeners aren't compatible with the largest 730 cha chain files. Is it worth mod modifying one to fit my 661? It could be. You know, I'm speaking more to the layman, right? If you're running, if, if you're slinging the big chain, the big, uh, the big cubic inch chain, and you're running the big 660 saws, I'm pretty well, I'm gonna assume that you know what you're doing. You probably also may not be running round file. You might be running chisel file. I don't know if I would do that. Um, I'd probably stick to what works for you. This, I think, is more in line for dudes that have just struggled with it, that maybe use their saw once or twice a year, that don't, you know, just, they don't want to have to take the chains off and have some other do and do it. You know, you can do it yourself with these, even guys that have never done it before. Is it the best? It's not the best, but it's pretty darn good. And it's good enough where I don't, 
I just like it so much, just having an all-in-one, it just makes my life easier. It's one thing to grab. It's a whole lot easier to carry this around than three or four individual pieces, like you would have to do with a depth raker gauge and such. I personally, if, if I was going to be cutting a lot, and when I cut a lot, I didn't fool, I don't fool around with filing on site. I'm going to have six chains. I'm going to take the time up here on my vise in a comfortable position with my music and my YouTube videos on, and I'm going to file my saws properly with good light on a bench, and I'm going to tuck those away, put them in rubber bands, and I'm going to have those. And when I need a, a saw of a chain, I'm going to swap that guy out with a new one. I'm not going to fool with that. So if you're cutting a lot, I probably would not recommend it. Just to kind of stick with what you have, go with that method. But if you want something to throw in your box and you've struggled with filing your saw, this is a good method. One of the things that makes this so handy is you see the angle of it? When you, you know, guessing that angle is always kind of a trick for a lot of dudes. This takes that away because that angle, you just match that up to your bar. So your bar is like this right there. So each time you come back to file, you can correct it. It's quite, it's quite good. I don't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend it for that big saw, though. No, I probably wouldn't. Good question, though. And shout out to you, Evan, for having a 661. Man, that's a bigger saw than I own. I've never had one of those big boys, but that is a man saw for sure. Goodness. Shout out to Evan. Must be nice. We must be nice to have a 661. We have a super chat from Mr. Brandon Brandon Aga. He's been with us for two months. Shout out to you, Brandon. Sure nice. appreciate you being here. He says, Waco and other private timber companies have already enacted a burn ban. No chainsaw cutting. Do you see a rough fire season coming? I sure do. Man, I sure do. Again, this is just kind of anecdotal going off what I've been hearing of late and what I've been seeing. But I, we're starting to see fires pop off very, very early this year. And, and I don't really know why. I mean, we seem to get quite a bit of rain. There was a good snowpack and such. But there's a lot... There's just a lot that goes into it, you know, the wind and your RH, your relative humidity and all that sort of thing. But I do. I do. Judging from what I've seen so far, it looks like we might have a pretty bad fire season. We're going to want to, um, you know, if that kicks off, we'll probably want to get all of our stuff out and just make sure we have everything ready. I'll do, I, I typically, right before fire season, when the red flag warnings start coming in, I typically will do, uh, we'll do some wildland videos, how to, uh, get your home safe, what to look for um, if you're in an area in the urban interface, how you can set up your home where it has a lot less likely a chance or, or a more likely chance to survive a wildland fire, as well as make it much more likely that the agencies that are tasked with putting out this fire will actually spend time on your house. One thing we've had to do in the past uh, is triage homes. We had to make, I had to, as an engine boss, I had to make the call of which homes were going to be, we, we were going to make, try to protect and which ones that we were just going to leave um, to chance. And the, why that happens is that we'll go into an urban interface area, maybe a day or two uh, ahead of where the fire is projected to come. And we have to make some hard choices. Let's say that we have uh, a task force, um, that we've got um, five, five engines. And in that five engines, we've got um, you know, five, you know, 20, 25 guys or so. Well, our, our assignment may be we have 24 hours to get these houses ready 
to give them every chance of surviving the fire as it comes through. What do we do? We have 200 homes and we have 25 guys and 24 hours. How do we, how do we effectively manage this time and, and save as many houses as possible? Well, it's called triage. And triage is something I learned when I was a, a medic, is triage, if you are the only EMT and you roll up on a scene, you are taught, you have to find out, you can't treat everyone, you only have limited resources. How do you be as effective as possible? Well, the best thing you can do in a situation like that is rather than just running to the person that's making the most noise because they're hurting or bleeding, you need to figure out what's going on. Before you touch any patients or do anything, you need to have an assessment of who's really in need. And that's what's called triage. So you'll go through, so if you have 10 people down, you're gonna go through there and you're gonna make some assessments. Is this person breathing or not breathing? Which ones are too far gone to save and which ones are not? So why waste your time on a lost cause, on someone that has not been breathing for 10 minutes or is obviously dead when there are other people that are still alive that you might be able to save? So that's what triaging is. It's just, it's just a, a process that you're trained to, 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 to effectively distribute resources to where they're best or most needed. Well, we adopted that same thing with wildland fire. So I would start by cruising the neighborhoods and we would go down the driveways and I would quickly take a look. Have they, what is the material of the roof? Is it metal or is it cedar shakes? Or is it composition? All of these give marks. Well, if it's cedar shakes and it's uh, got gutters on it and they're full of pine needles and there's pine needles and branches all over the roof and they've got a couple cords of firewood stacked up on their porch and they haven't cut the grass around the house and they've got bushes all over, you know, that are untrimmed, you know, and they haven't trimmed up their, their trees. You know, I can look at that and within just a second, I can, I can make the decision, this is hopeless. Yeah, we could come in here and do all this work for them and save this home, but the fact that the homeowner didn't do anything at all, knowing that they live in an urban interface, knowing that they live in a, high, a, a place where there's a high probability of wildland fire, well, we're not going to do it either. And so we would triage that. I would just basically write that house off. This is, we're not gonna put any effort into this whatsoever because the landowner, the homeowner, he didn't put any effort in himself. Not to mention he chose poor building materials and this thing is gonna go up immediately and there's no point of wasting time with it. So we would go out and we developed a little kind of a secret code. Uh, sometimes they use paint colors, sometimes they'll use different marks, but you'll paint a rock or a line or something on the front of the house. So when crews come through in the future, this house has already been triaged and this is the rating that's been given. One, two or three, hopeless or we'll try for it. Now let's say I roll up on the next, the next um, house and uh, everything has been cut down and the lawn is all green and the owners have left some sprinklers going to keep everything wet. Maybe they've got a metal roof. Um, they've taken all of their firewood that was once stacked on the porch, and now that's off away from the house. They have trimmed up their branches to prevent ladder fuels or any ground fires from getting up into the crown, which is the real threat. And they've made every single effort to protect their home. Then that's the home that we'll protect as well. Yeah, it's highly likely that we'll be able to save this home. They chose smart building materials, i.e. metal roof. They don't have um, um, uncovered porches, decks, that sort of thing. They don't have pine needles up in their gutters, if they have gutters at all. You see where we're going with that? 
I would triage that home as a highly likely or a probability. I would even go so far as to park an engine on that. I would task one of my guys up until the last moment where we had to leave to stay there and to put a crew on that house uh, to try to save it because it's highly likely that we could save it. So that's what triaging is. Fun fact, one thing that happened when we were doing that on the Carlton fire, I believe it was one of the biggest fires uh, in the state of Washington that I was on up there for almost three weeks. Um, the locals got somehow found out what our triage system was and started swapping rocks, changing rocks. So they would take, they, or they would, they would re-triage their own home. I don't know who spilt the bag on, who, sp who spilt the, uh, I don't know who told our secret, but interesting, fun fact. Yes, but I do, Brandon. I do see a bad fire season, definitely. We have a super chat from Mr. Cedar Pardee Lewis. Shout out to you, brother, who writes, Have you seen Only the Brave? Great movie about the Arizona wildland fire. My husband and I said the fire chief character reminded us of you. I have seen that movie. Yeah, I think I did a, I think I did a review on the trailer before it came out, and then I watched it. I, I really enjoyed it. It was um, it was. Quite well done. It was not the greatest movie in the world, but if you come from wildland firefighting and, and that runs in your veins like it does with me, that was a movie that I was very excited to see. I was expecting to be hypercritical on this movie because one thing that bothers me about movies is when they're not technically correct. I appreciate a movie that has good technical advisors, meaning that if you're going to do a movie about whatever it is. Let, let's say they're going to be, do a movie about the Navy SEALs, right? I would imagine, you know, just from what I know, just as an enthusiast, I know if the equipment is going to be correct. I know if the tactics that they're using, are, give or take, are going to be somewhat correct. I can only imagine a guy that's really knows it, has worked on a team, is going to really be able to pick that point out. And I, and I, I really appreciate a producer or a production company or a director that brings someone in and will listen to them so that they can do things right. That extra effort goes a long ways with me. I, I really don't like movies that have things that are Im impossible or improbable um, that pass by maybe a lot of people, but I always pick up on those things. So I, I was really looking for this. Someone that's been involved in wildland firefighting you know, for nearly two decades, uh, over two decades, almost th three decades, um, I've seen all aspects of it, and I know because it's the Forest Service, it doesn't change very much, you know. So I was very happy to see that just from the, the clothing, the PPE, the yellows and reds, to, to just to everything, just everything that I saw was technically, was really, really close. There was a little bit of, um, you know, one thing I think I was critical on that movie about is that there was a scene where uh, the town is trying to evacuate, and it's, com it's complete chaos and pandemonium, and people are running around, and, and the firefighters are in there, and it's just all this mess. And I, I think I pointed out the fact, like, this is not very realistic. You know, this has been done for drama. But I had someone that corrected me on that and said, you know, actually, maybe not where you have operated, but if you've ever been down to California, those fires down there move so quickly that they come upon these um, neighborhoods and cul-de-sacs so rapidly that people are actually have no notice. It, it can happen that quickly and it's very much like the scene in the movie of pandemonium of people trying to get their loved ones and animals and pets and good heaven help you if you've got animals, you know, agriculture and such, 
uh, that it could be like that. So, so I, I stand corrected on that. Where I have operated, usually it's in the urban interface where we, we, we live in, we fight fire usually in heavy fuels, meaning big, heavy timber. And we can know where it starts and forecast quite accurately how quickly it can travel in a day, where it's gonna be in a week, where it's gonna be in a day, make the warnings, do the evacuation. So I never have really experienced that pandemonium, that chaos, but apparently it can happen. But I enjoyed the movie. I found it to be technically correct. Typical American, you know, a little over the top and a few things, but, but a good movie, a, a good movie nonetheless. Yeah, good question. We have a, a live chat from Dante Wimbush. Shout out to you, Dante. And Dante writes, currently looking for a new job. My current machine shop job, which is a massive manufacturer, has just went downhill like crazy. That's unusual. Such a shame that companies no longer care for good Americans and families. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's been, that's been in decline for a long time now. Yeah, I think most of us have realized that now, I'm going to be speaking for bigger companies. You don't tend to see that with smaller manufacturing, in my experience. Usually, if you're working with the owner, the guy who is writing the check, and he's there shoulder to shoulder with you and doing the work, you don't typically see that. Um, but with the bigger companies, yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah, you just have to, you, you just have to not, not get yourself invested. That way you won't get your heart broke if you're working for these big companies. Look at it this way. You don't owe them any allegiance. They, they don't owe you any allegiance, and they're not going to give you any allegiance. The moment there's a downturn or they lose a contract or they switch gears to do whatever, you're going to immediately be thrown out, maybe even without any, any no notification. So just understand that. So as you go into it, you have to go into it with kind of a mercenary attitude. I am going to do what I've been hired to do. I'll do it honorably. I'll do my work honestly. But I'm also, I'm not married to this. I'm not putting in extra if I'm not going to receive any extra back. And get as much as you can out of that. Get as much experience. Get as much um, opportunities. If there's opportunity for you to learn something or to learn on a new five-axis CNC or what have you, you know, take advantage of that and get that knowledge. Because once you have that knowledge in your, and that ability and those certifications in, you know, and the knowledge in your mind, they can never take that away from you. You know, now that makes your value greater and greater to someone else. So just don't get emotionally involved in it. See it for what it is. It's mercenary. It's, um, it's dog eat dog out there for these big companies. And get in, get yours, get your bag, get your education, get as much experience as you can. Um, but don't, um, don't take it personally. Um, that's just, it's, uh, that's the world we live in now. It's definitely the world we live in. Shout out to you though, Dante. Good luck finding a better job. Our friend Shane. Shane is in the chat. Welcome. Shane writes, does farming knowledge beat Proho? Well, here we haven't had we haven't really broached this yet, have we? Grew up living on a livestock farm and think it beats Proho skills, but farming doesn't do domestic construction. What do you think? You know, the first thing that comes to mind, do you know what an Air Force PJ is? Pararescue? Something that I was hoping to, tried to get in when I was younger. I was very interested in it. How I understand it, maybe it's changed now, but when I was looking into it, if you went into the Air Force, 
you could become a PJ, you could do one of two things. You could go into the medical side, search and rescue medical side of it, where you basically came out of there a paramedic. You were a great, great medic, able to treat all sorts of problems. Then there was another course. There was a fork in the road. You could go that way, or you could go to a right, the right, and you could do command and control, where you are um, more of a lookout, um, forward observer. For I, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just, but it's two different directions. But both of them are referred to as PJs. Both of them are, are both PJs, regardless of the route that they take. I look at this question the same way. If you have that ability where you can farm, run combines, know how to skin hogs, animal husbandry, all those things, absolutely 1,000% you are, of course, uh, pro-ho, even if you don't have the ability to swing a framing hammer or do those sort of things. Now, it's unlikely, it's unlikely that agricultural pro-ho is not already going to have a lot of those skills and abilities because working on a farm or ranch, you kind of have to. Working on a farm and ranch you're going to have to know how to do just about every single thing that a man needs to know how to do. Machining, mechanicing, problem solving, you know, you just name it. Food production, animal husbandry, all that sorts of the firearms, you know, home protection, fence mending, goodness. But let's say that you are a full on ag guy and you don't have, you know, you don't have a tool belt frame. Yes, you are certainly pro ho, not one better than the other, but equal 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 in all ways that's that's the way that i look at it but farming doesn't do domestic construction what do you think yeah yeah i think that you're on safe ground chain you are definitely pro ho uh, just just of a, a bird of a different feather shout out to you mr roman carlisle shout out to you who writes hey mr w what's your all-time favorite fixed blade would you like to see it i have two no, goodness, my cabinet's locked. Man, I wanted to have a visual aid. My favorite two, I'm just going to, no, if I could only choose one, I, he didn't ask me my favorite two. If I had to choose one, like if I could only have one fixed blade for the rest of my life in the tra trajectory that we're in, where we may need to, I may need to use it for butchering, skinning, may need to use it for um, bushcraft survival, may need to use it for defense, and just, it's gotta last forever, and easy to, easy to sharpen, but holds the edge well, with a good sheath. I'm going to fall, I'm gonna default on a bushcraft style of knife. Why? Well, a bushcraft style of knife, is, it, it has a lot going on. The bushcraft, in my opinion, I don't know of any, I, I, this might not even be true, but just judging off of my experience and what I know about the world and knives and such, there's a group of people that live up in the, um, I think they're called the Sami, uh, that live up in the northern, up in the northern portions of like Sweden and such. They're the reindeer people, the people that travel with the, the reindeer, the indigenous people. Now, Mrs. W, as you know, is half Swedish and is a fluent speaker and has lived and worked and taught English over there and spent a lot of time over there. Her mother and family is from Sweden. She uh, was teaching English way, way up north up there uh, in one of these villages and, and got to know these people and, and um, 
and, and learn about their culture and such and brought back a lot of different artifacts and has actually taught me quite a bit about them. And I find them quite interesting. Once I heard these stories, I started kind of reading a little bit myself and, and I got to looking into them and I really got interested in their tools. And one thing that the Sami, the reindeer people do is they carry a, uh, they, they wear a neck knife. They wear a neck, it's got a, a rawhide strap around it with a kind of a handmade sheath uh, and a small knife that comes out. And this knife comes out of this sheath, who knows, hundreds of times a day. It's just the type of people that they are. And, and I, I watched a video one time of, of a, one of these Samis, Sami guys, I think it's Sami, was talking about this and, and using his tool and how this, this knife developed. And this is coming from, this is thousands and thousands of years of evolution from these people that have done the same thing for a long time. And what that is, is living off the land, living off these reindeer. And this tool has developed this particular knife almost in perfection. And the reason I think the neck knife is really popular, and, and guys like Dave Canterbury and some of the more notable bushcraft guys have, have kind of followed suit with this or picked up on this, is that... Uh, if you're working with a knife all the time, that it's a like an implement that you're grabbing and using all the time, especially when you're camp building. When you're building a camp elk hunting or doing bushcrafting or survival making, you, you that knife is, is is in your hands almost all the time. It, it is an extension of your arm. And so that what's developed from this form is that bushcraft style. Now, a couple things going on. It's going to have a full tang. So it's going to be a strong knife, meaning that the steel goes all the way into the handle, and, and so it will last. It's also going to have usually have a handle that's very comfortable. It's going to be similar a similar type of handle that if you were to grab uh, like warm mud or clay and let it kind of conform to the shape of your hand, it's going to be similar to that. That's a knife that won't give hot spots. It's going to be comfortable to use and to work with hour after hour, day after day unlike our folding pocket knives and such, which are good to whip out for cutting a cardboard or a string or getting a sliver out, but not going to be great for holding on for a long period of time. Definitely not going to be good for butchering animals and such. So that's kind of, just to give you my thought process, why I would kind of go to the bushcrafting knife, just for, because as a general purpose, as, as an all-arounder, they're very, very good for that. It's going to have a sturdy blade, about four inches or so, but thick in the back so that it's going to be tough. It's going to be a difficult knife to break. So it'll be strong and last a long time. It's got that Scandinavian grind on it, so it can be sharpened relatively simply and easily. So for, for those reasons, um, I would go with the bushcrafting style of knife. The best one I've ever held, I haven't held all of them, but my favorite knife is the Spyderco Bushcraft. The Spyderco Bushcraft um, meets all those criteria and I tend to grab that. Um, I grab it for woodworking projects. I just, I just grab it all the time. If I could only have one knife, that would be the knife that I would choose. Would be the, and I don't think they make it anymore. Um, so Benchmade's got one too. That would be, it's pretty nice as well. That'd be it. Or if I was going to be on a budget, you know what knife I would look at? Probably, I, I think pound for pound out there, if you want something that is an awesome knife that's not going to cost much more than $100, um, that Gerber, Mr. Overton, if you're in the comments or any of the middlemen, look up Gerber's go-to soldier knife, their fixed-bladed soldier knife. It's got the, pla it's got, you know the one, the classic 
clip point. I forget. I'm not prepared. But that would be a good knife as well. Shout out to you, Roman. Mr. TJ Lahan. Shout out to you. TJ writes. Oh, and new member. Goodness, we have to do a sound drop for that. Must be nice to have a new member. TJ writes. Started a homestead channel with my wife, Cedarbrook Meadows. Found a neat compartment in the Husqvarna case. Working, recording, and posting is difficult. You make it look easy. So much to do. Also bought a Nelson King James Version. Well, shout out to you, man. Hey, don't worry about that. It, yes, he's talking about starting up, making content. He's doing a YouTube channel. Let's give a shout out to his channel, Cedar Brook Meadows. If one of you guys would be so kind to, to go look up Cedar, Break, Cedar Brook Meadows and put a link to his channel in here. We'll give him a little bit of love. Um, he's doing content now. Yeah, well, you make it look easy. It, yeah, it's, it, it gets easy after you do it for 13, 14 years. Uh, you'll learn a thing or two of what works and what doesn't work. And I certainly have tried absolutely everything. It's, it's not easy. It's, it's not an easy job. People think it is until they have to do it. Um, but just like anything, a guy that's done something for 10 years, it always looks easy. Um, it just it comes, with, comes with experience. The advice that I would give you, though, as a new YouTuber, if you want to do it, is just, just keep uploading. And content is king. Content is king. Just keep uploading. Even if it's not great, even if you're not happy with stuff, just be consistent and just keep doing it. And you'll figure it out. You'll figure it out. Just remember, don't get bogged down by tech. Avoid and shun technology as much as you can. Keep things simple. And when you buy something, buy quality. When you buy a tripod or a light or a microphone, buy the best you can afford. Uh, and don't, because you'll end up buying it twice. Um, especially if you're doing outdoor type of stuff. If you're doing stuff where you're dragging equipment around and you'll be out in the rain and winter and summer, summer and sun, you need to have good stuff. So don't cheap out because you'll buy up twice. Mr. Jason Barr. Shout out to you, Mr. Barr. Welcome. Mr. Barr always brings some interesting insights to the conversation. Proho verse of the day. All right. Are you ready, gentlemen? This comes from the book of Hebrews. Let your conversations be without covetousness. Covetousness this is meaning to covet something is uh, King Ranch. And you're driving an old Chevy, right? And you look upon that with greed and lust and covetousness. That's what it means. Don't, don't, be, don't be covetous. Don't be covetousness. <laughs> don't have it. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content in such things as ye have. For ye have said... I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah, if the world were about these things, possessions and trucks and wives, women, girls, whatever, um, then a man, I could see where you could get, you could eat yourself alive with covetousness, especially when that's being promoted. That's one thing that concerns me about a lot of young people that are heavily involved in the culture in the music industry, in the rap industry, and all that is a lot of um, talking, boasting about what I have, what I can do, and how much better. And it's very hyper competitive, and that the the stage is set or the standard is set that that is what that's the highest thing that we could work towards or to to achieve in this world. But God's people know otherwise. There's nothing wrong with having a new truck. Nothing wrong with with 
having the tools and the things that you need. But when it can, consumes you and you start comparing yourself to others, be, thinking yourself to be better than them because of what you have or what you've accomplished in this world, that's what we're talking about here. The man of the book, the, the, the proho man of faith, um, he doesn't worry about these things. You can look at your neighbor who's got something new and you can enjoy it with him. You can go over there and, oh man, this is fantastic and show me around and I'm happy for you. You can be that way honestly because you know these things are just temporary and fleeting. That what we really covet is that walk with Christ, is that the future life. We know as proho that we are living in occupied territory, that we were never designed to live in this environment. We were never designed to live in separation from our Heavenly Father, from our Creator. It's like a child at a mall that's been separated from his parents and is wandering around, you know, alone for the first time. You know, that, that isolation, that fear is, is real. And that's kind of what we, those of us who know what's going on, know that this separation existed and know, know that there's a way back and that this is something that we have to endure for a while, understand that understand that and to not get too attached to the things here or I guess determine our value by our things, our possessions. God knows it judges the heart, doesn't look upon these things. And we know that someday very soon, could be sooner for some of us than others, that we will um, we live for other things. That, that's the point I'm trying to make here. But thank you Mr. Barr. Mr. Barr always dropping the thought-provoking scriptures upon Proho. I sure appreciate that. There it is. Yep, there's the knife. It is called, thank you, it's the infantry, the Gerber LMF-2 infantry knife. Now, there are many var variants of these. Some of them, I think, are more exotic steel. You can pay a lot more money for them, but if you just get the, just the generic one, it's the, um, the, yeah, the infantry knife. I love that knife. I've never owned one. I've wanted it. I, I keep, I keep, I've put it in my, I put that knife in my shopping cart so many times and never check, checked it out because I don't really need it. But I, I like the look of it, just the strength and the heft and what I read about this knife. If you wanted a go-to-war knife that was just a good all-around fixed blade that's not too expensive, go look these up. Um, that's the one. Yep. About a hundred bucks or so. And if you Go on eBay, you probably get one for half of that. Yeah, thank you, brothers. I appreciate that. Thanks for throwing that picture up there. Mr. J. Ray, shout out to you. Jay writes, hey, Wrangler, some guy bit my foreskin off when I was a wee lad and said it was, prote it was protected federally. How can I ever recover? I'm going to have to uh, presume that it was a, a man wearing a small hat uh, that did that. Yeah, that's a very odd custom. Very odd custom with our Jewish friends. Uh, there is a small sect, I've been told, um, that um, rabbis, I think, will often do uh, circumcision, the rite of circumcision with our Jewish friends, and some of them uh, do it with their mouth. Um, I find that a little bit sus. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what, if anyone tried to do that to my son, well, we wouldn't be looking for the foreskin. They'd be looking for him, and he would be never found, would he? I'm sorry to hear that, Jay. I don't know that you're going to find it. You might just have to move up and on and, and just and start living uh, in your state of mutilation, I'm sorry to say. Mr. Deacon, 
scale singer. Shout out to you, shout out to you, brother. We have a is our newest member, our newest member, and we have a super chat from Mr. Todd Blankenship. Shout out to you, Todd. Welcome. Nice to have you here. Todd writes, any recommendations for fabricating a fire trailer for slash pile fire? Yeah. Slash pile fire defense. Manufactured trailers are beyond my budget. Yeah. What would I do? Um, So first off, let's start with, before we start talking about trailers, um, what he needs, so this is commonly done up here. If you, let, let's say you're a logging contractor and you have a site up the road and you bid on it and you got the job and you're going to go log it. One thing that's mandated for all those guys is they have to have a fire suppression, either a truck or a trailer. Something on scene that's got a certain amount of water in it. It's got a certain, a fire pump with a certain amount of pressure, capacity, you know, all these things so that if a piece of equipment starts a fire, or when they're burning brush piles or cleanup, it gets away from them, they can deal with it then. Because what we know, and the reason why we put so much money in this country into hell attack, firefighters, smoke jumpers and such, what we've learned is that if we can jump on a fire when it first starts, quickly, when it's small, when it's a quarter acre, eighth of an acre, lightning strike, if we can jump on those then with a small crew, that we can drop in or jump in or fast rope in, we can have this thing put out in, in two or three hours, four or five hours, sometimes maybe a day or two. And then it doesn't expand and do millions of acres of damage and untold misery and uh, destruction, right? So a stitch in time has always been the theory. This is a good thing to have. And I do the same thing. When I was doing, when I was burning my trench line, I had my skid unit out there. There was I was never really in danger, but there were times when the, when the fire got a little bit hot, a little bit hotter, and maybe getting close to getting out of control, no problem. Put a little water on it, cool it down, I manage it. I control the fire, it doesn't control me. And having something like this is very, very valuable and money well spent, and something you absolutely should think about having if you live in the urban interface. If you do this sort of thing, you need to have your own fire suppression system. Now, it doesn't need to be a fancy one. I made my own. I've I've done multiple videos where when I didn't have any money, I, I had to figure out a way to do this. I made my own. You can either find something on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace, but make it yourself. All you need is one of those 300-gallon totes or a small tote. How much water do you need for something like that? I can do it with 50 gallons. 85, 100 gallons, maybe 150 gallons for most people. 150 gallons would be on the, on the large side. Uh, if you're just pro-ho, just burning your own stuff, maybe doing small field burning, maybe you're building, burning your irrigation ditches, whatever you're doing, you should be able to work with 100 gallon, 50 to 100 gallons or so. You don't need to invest in anything fancy. Go online, find a little homemade trailer that someone made just a little guy, 4x6, four 4x4, four four, whatever. Just make sure it's got good tires on it. You could even probably do this. I don't know what the weight rating is on a Harbor Freight trailer, but I know those are affordable. I see those around all the time. But just get something, either make it yourself or just get something that is not a fire trailer, but it's got a two-inch two ball. Uh, it's got a platform that you could build on and whatever. You, you know what I'm saying. You could, those things are a dime a dozen. They're out there all over the place. Guy could even 
convert and chop down a small um, trailer for like a boat trailer, for like a little 14, 16 foot uh, fishing boat. Once you get that, then just go get yourself uh, uh, some 55 gallon drums, or you can get yourself one of those square totes. We've all seen them, those clear totes that have the wire baskets on them. You know, those things hold anywhere from 200 to a little over 300 gallons. Now, a couple problems with those, they're not baffled. So do understand that if you half fill one of these things half full, and you get that thing rocking, and it will get rocking, it'll, t it'll dump your trailer right over. So just know this sort of thing. When you, don't, when you don't have baffled water, that's a problem. So the only way that you can safely haul water in an unbaffled tank is to fill it up to the top. Now, once it's filled up to the top with a 200-gallon tote, you know, that's, what, seven pounds a gallon? You have to do the math and figure that out. So just, I'm just giving you some things to consider. I'm not going to tell you how to make it, but just some things to consider if you're going to be making it yourself. Not a problem to have a 250-gallon tote full of water, but just understand that, that if you're going to be transporting it on a light-duty trailer, do not do it half full. Uh, it'll, your, your life will be miserable. Do some, something like that. And you're going to need a pump. You're going to need a pump. Now, high-pressure pumps are super expensive. Fire pumps are super expensive, primarily because, one, they're high-pressure, and number two, um, they've got to be high-quality. You can't have cheap stuff for life safety. Fire pumps could be the difference between life or death. Could be the difference between you saving your home and not saving it. You can't have harbor freight quality if you have a choice. And professional firefighters have a choice. So fire, there's just not a lot of market for low-end, high-pressure pumps that I've ever seen before. What I did, and you do whatever you want to do, it's going to be tempting, and what everyone does wrong is they go buy a trash pump. They, they think, well, pumps are pumps. They'll go buy a trash pump. A trash pump is cheap. They're all over the Internet, <coughs> but they're nearly useless for firefighting because they don't put out high pressure. A lot of volume, but no pressure. What you need is pressure because once that fire gets hot, you need to be able to throw it some distance. You can't get that close to it. It's too hot. It'll burn your face, burn your skin. You need to back off a little bit. And you need that pressure to get in and penetrate. You need to penetrate through branches, through grass, through obstacles, and get underneath there where the heat is. So there's various reasons for it. Plus, you need to get a lot of water on quick. And, you, and, and to do that, you need high pressure. So don't buy one of those. The best compromise is Honda makes a high-pressure pump. Um, they make them um, in like three sizes, from like one inch up to two inch. I've owned a couple of those. Um, I would look at one of those. It's not high pressure per se. You know, it's not going to be like 140 pounds like mine, but it will get you up to about 60. And that's enough for a regular guy. That's enough. 60 PSI is enough on a one inch, inch and a half hose where you can do some serious damage. All you've got to do is just plumb that thing in. Get a Honda high pressure pump, used or new. Get yourself an I IBC or ICB, whatever it is, a tote and just a used trailer and just, you know, get to work. You can put that together, build it yourself. You're still going to have, I mean, there's no such thing as free. You're still going to have 1000 1500 bucks into it, but you're not going to have 10 you know, so that's what I did. I've done it, and I've used them on fires, and they've worked. I Actually, I, all of the ones that I've built in the past, I, I sold them, sold them to friends or acquaintances. They're still using them, and have had good luck with them.
So you can do it. Mr. Daniel Shipley, shout out to you, Daniel. Daniel writes, and new member, welcome, shout out to you. Daniel, Daniel writes, do you think with all the food processing plant fires that the increase in wildfires could be set on purpose from adversaries, China, Russia, etc.? Yeah, I, I fully expect, I have nothing to go off of apart from two years ago. When we were down there, some of you followed along, I, I live streamed some of this when, when my buddy and I loaded up all of our gear and we went down to help save his father's house from that fire that was burning down in towards uh, Canby, Oregon. The, this was all denied by the officials, but I'm of the belief, I'm of the opinion that the reason why all those fires broke out so quickly, I believe that that was arson, in my opinion. They were all up and down the I-5 corridor. Uh, they seemed to be somewhat coordinated. And man, it, it, they were fires that had started in a place that in the Willamette Valley of all places, which is unheard of, a big conflagration in the Willamette Valley just because of the moisture content and, and just where, where it's located. But yet here we had it. And it was really a bad one. I'm of the opinion being on that and just what I've seen and heard that those, many of those were, were man-made. Now, last year, I was expecting, that was three years ago. Last year, I was kind of expecting, and the year before, the same thing. Are we going to see this? This is, if the word got out on how simple this is to do and how devastating the effects could be, it's such a small amount of risk for such a massive reward if you were a, a, a terrorist. And, and you can start these things in remote areas that are not patrolled. And by just taking basic safety measures, I mean, as I said before, if I, if I were, if that was my job to go out and to wreak havoc on the, on the forest, I, I mean, I could be a one-man wrecking crew with what I know, and there's a whole bunch of other guys do. You wait for the red, fl we don't need to get the details, but you wait for the right conditions, and I could burn down half the state. I mean, it, it, it is a terrible, terrible vulnerability that we have that is going to be exploited, in my opinion. So what do we do about it? Well, the only thing we can do and control is our own situation. You know, do you live in the urban interface? Do you, is your house at risk of being burnt up by a wildland fire or forest fire? Well, you need to take precautions. And one of the most important things you need to have is your own fire suppression system, at least something basic like we talked about. A skid unit you can put on the back of your truck, basic understanding, make sure you keep your fields uh, mowed Make sure you have um, a sprinkler set up, and I'll do a video on all this when we get into fire season coming up on how to set up a sprinkler system to protect your roof. Um, uh, a grab-and-go kit that you can deploy that I keep right here. I'm looking at it right now that I can deploy around my house, around a neighbor's house, that would highly, highly increase the likelihood of being able to save that house. But yes, I not just... China or Russia, I, I would say it's, that's probably less likely. I think it more likely uh, th that this is going to happen from a domestic, a domestic source. You know, who and where? I don't know. Could be thrill seekers. Uh, it's common for firefighters to, to be arsonists. Uh, that's a real common, that's a thing that's not talked about, um, but something that's known to people in the industry. Firefighters are typically firebugs. They have an interest in it. That's why they get into it. And it's been not uncommon for firefighters to go and start fires on wild land or in structural because they want 
to have something to do. They want to go be the hero or they just, I don't know what the, I don't know what the mentality of it is. Um, but I would expect, yeah, I would expect to see, and once, you know, once the word gets out, it's like, remember how the first school shooting, how, you know, the one that really sticks out was Columbine. It was really, I don't maybe it happened before that, but that really put it on the radar. And then we've had copycats ever since. That's kind of the go-to thing now. Well, once, if, if someone were to start a fire and they were to get away with it, and it was, you know, a, a Columbine type of event, you know, where it was, they were able to burn down a lot of stuff and do a lot of damage um, and not get caught, you know, that will catch on and that will happen more and more and more. And it's going to be up to, the people in the areas to do some patrolling and, and to be doing be more vi vigilant. It's also going to be up to the people to be able to respond to something like that. Like, let's say we saw smoke coming up, and it was two miles up a logging road to the north. You know, how long does it take the feds to to mobilize and to get that going? And by that time, you know, if we're in red flag, that thing could be you know 40, 80, 200 acres before supper time. Whereas, if local guys have taken upon themselves to do something about it, have a dozer, piece of equipment, a skid unit, water tank, a couple, two, three guys could go up there with a, some basic stuff and have that put out um, before it turns into a, confl a conflagration. But yes, Daniel, to answer your questions, I do expect, I do expect to see that. It, I, I'll be shocked if we don't see it, to be honest with you. We have a super chat from TP Project. Shout out to you, TP. Nice. Welcome. Who writes? I work at a smallish manufacturing company where one of the owners daily operates a lathe and has taken maybe a single day off in a year. Small companies are the move all the way if you can't. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely, absolutely. The small companies, they're going to be completely different. You know, they're going to be, well, we all know the thing speaks for itself, but I agree. Yeah, I would rather work for a small company and uh, usually good dudes, you're gonna have better people and you know, it means something to you. When you can see, when, you, when you're working side by side with the owner of the company and he treats you well, and you know his family and his wife and his kids and you know that he sacrifices for his company and you know he tries to do a good product and tries to do the right thing and he knows that, you know, if you got in a pinch or you know if you got in a pinch, you know, he'd probably try to help you out and or at least be compassionate if you couldn't come in for a reason and not just fire you you know, as long as you had a good reason, um, that's a whole lot better environment to work for. And I would be much more willing to go the extra mile, you know, put in some overtime, stay a little bit later, put in every single effort, extra effort to help this guy out and his family, you know, because we're, we're all in this kind of together. And uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's the best way to work, in my opinion. I would much prefer that. And our newest member, Mr. Tate Scharnberg. Tate Scharmberg, shout out to you. Welcome. Welcome. Good to have you here. And also, quick shout out to the Battle Chemist. The Battle Chemist is one of our one of our OG members. Overton told me that he is following suit and going to look at buying his first motorcycle. Uh, and, and it was asked if I could do a video covering how to buy a used motorcycle. Maybe 10 things to look for to tell if something's been abused so you don't get a lemon. Because there's a lot of guys that are kind of picking up on what I'm laying down here with having an enduroed or a dual sport motorcycle would be really a good thing to have as just an emergency vehicle in these difficult times. 
if we go into full-on depression, the wear and tear taking off of expensive vehicles, maybe you can even get rid of a vehicle or two or drop a payment or just drop some expense if you're trying to tighten the belt to be able to get, have something that's 60, 70 miles per gallon, that's gonna be a lot cheaper to keep tires on, that you could run around and get in any environment, get around roadblocks. No one's gonna corral you with a moto. You can be able to go and do whatever you want to do. Let them shut the highways down. Won't make any difference to the warband. We operate independently <laughs> of uh, normal traffic uh, type of uh, flows. So I like this concept to have. Not to mention just even if you are, even if your family, you know, like, well, what if I have a family? You know, what good's it gonna do to buy me a moto if I can't put all my kids and all my stuff on it? Well, you know, there's situations where that works too. If you like to go out and overland or camp or that sort of thing, you know, if you're relying upon your truck or your SUV or your Subaru, whatever, you know, that, that could get stuck. That can get um, break down or get damaged and you could be out in the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, it wouldn't be a bad to incorporate into your systems, you know, having an extra vehicle, having a motorcycle or a way to carry it or, you know, you guys can figure that stuff out. Proho's pretty smart. But I like the concept of having a dual sport. Just to have an, a vehicle that's going to give you a lot of options. You can get into any location. You'll be able to go on single tracks. You'll go places that no vehicle can go. You get around any gate, get around, get across streams. It doesn't make any difference. You do whatever you need to do, you're going to be able to do it on these dual sport motorcycles. And you're going to have a great hobby. You're going to meet good dudes. And it's, it's the way to go. So shout out to the battle chemist who I was told is looking at purchasing a used vehicle. So I look forward to see. I look forward. Uh, I hope it works out. hope it works out. All right, beloved. We are going to shut it down. I have a lot of work to do today. We're working on the fence, and i got to get going there on the utilities. The sun is out, and it's time to make hay. We've got a house to build this summer, and I've, I've got to get everything ready for that, and getting power out there is to it. So I'm going to shut it down, and we'll get out there for that. So thank you for hanging out with me. I sure do appreciate it. Thank you for all the super chats and for, for all the prayers and the middlemen, everything that they do. I really do appreciate it. Please keep us in your prayers. May God bless you and your families. We pray for you guys constantly. And we'll see you guys over on the next video.